everybody, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today, we have a super exciting episode about budgeting and saving. And to help us out with this very tricky topic for musicians, honestly, is uh, a guest we've already had on who was super popular and really helped us out with our taxes back in March, Tiffany Soricelli. But before we jump into that ep- the episode, we have one quick announcement. All right, guys, we're coming up on September, which means our 30-day practice challenge is on the horizon. We made some big announcements um, in last episode, and we're really, really excited. It's free to join. You can check out our Instagram at Opera Offstage. It has a bunch of information about how to join, what to expect, how to get signed up. And yeah, it's going to be a blast. So that's happening the whole month of September. So sign up. Well, we are so glad to have you back with us, Tiffany. And for those of our audience who haven't listened to our first episode yet, but we will link to it in the bio because it is a great episode on taxes. And if you, it's never too early to start preparing to file your taxes. (laughs) But for those of our audience who haven't met you before, can you give us a little short intro of who you are? Absolutely. Yeah. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. My name is Tiffany Sorcelli. I am an opera singer turned financial advisor. (laughs) I am the business owner and founder of Virtuoso Advising for Artists, which is a coaching and literacy business dedicated to furthering financial literacy and empowerment for creative professionals. And we will kind of reveal this a little bit later, but I am also the principal and founder of Virtuoso Asset Management a new registered investment advisory firm. And I believe it's the first in the country that's dedicated to artists and supporters of the arts. So a brand new financial services company really geared towards serving creative professionals. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) This is very exciting news. And if you haven't listened to our first episode, definitely give that a listen where Tiffany gives a very in-depth overview of her career and kind of that transition from opera singer into kind of like the finance world. She has a real heart for young artists and we love her for it. So today we are talking about budgeting and saving, which is something that before we even started this podcast, we knew we wanted to cover because it's something that I think is very nerve wracking for um, all young artists. And it's there's a lot of information out there. There's You can find a lot of random tips and tricks on like Facebook and Instagram. There's lots of podcasts and like not a lot of it is geared towards artists and there's sometimes conflicting advice. So we're excited to have Tiffany on to kind of help clear some things. So my first question is, you know, when first starting out, so many musicians are faced with fluctuating income. It's part of the game. You know, sometimes we're receiving $120 here and there for church gigs. Maybe we get $600 for like a Christmas service or an occasional larger gig. And Having fluctuating income can definitely be a really huge cause of stress for many musicians. And even if they're making, you know, stable income from another job or revenue stream, like, what do I do with this other sphere of money? So my question for you, Tiffany, is what mindset should we have when it comes to unstable income? And what are some tips for you know, moving money into savings when you don't really know how much is coming in? Yeah, this is that's. These are, I mean, this is the heart of it all, right? It's figuring out how, how to navigate this, especially starting out. So I, I want to start by saying that money management, money mindset, managing your finances, it is not a one size fits all. Everybody's circumstances are different. Everybody's coming from a different background and a different 
household environment where maybe people talked about money, maybe they didn't. So I think the first thing I want to share with all of your listeners is that do not compare yourself to anybody else. On Pinterest, on the internet, on Instagram, you're going to find people that are like, by 25, you should have these 25 things. By 30, you should be at this point in your life. And really, I want to say, especially for creative professionals, none of that matters. You are building something completely different than anybody sitting at a desk job slaving away with a, for a W-2 income. So kind of think about it. You shouldn't be comparing yourself to your parents, especially when they were our age or your age, and, and really not to your peers who are going in a different direction. So when you're thinking about your money and your life and what you're building, it's really important to to focus on what you want, right? So so with that unstable income, you know, the first thing to to think about is how much income do you need? And really one of the things that I teach with the young artist programs that I work with across the country is the importance of understanding what your needs are, right? How much does it cost to run your life? And and really what are those numbers? Because for you to start planning and building a strategy around that inconsistent income, it's first important to understand what income do you need? So with building a career and starting out with inconsistent income, I would say the mindset you want to have is is really focusing on your development as an artist. If this is the career that you have chosen and if this is the path for you, I, it's easy to be like, well, the money's secondary, put the art first. But that's, <laughs> it's, it's not really that because we all know that artistry doesn't pay your rent. But getting really clear on how much you need to live on and then building some income projections, building some systems that help you manage that around that is really core. The other thing that I really want to highlight, especially when it comes to money mindset and building a career as an artist, is is really getting clear on what you want. If you want to build your life as a working creative professional and you're still getting uh, to a point where you're earning income, but your contracts are getting slightly higher and you're on that upward trajectory... I think it's also really important to keep living below your means. Do things like live with your parents longer than you really want to. Do whatever it takes. Grab roommates. You know, keep cost of living low. Because the more you're able to kind of keep your your overhead low, the more you're going to be able to focus on building the career that then will allow you and, and afford you the opportunity for all the other fun things like travel and, you know, anything that, that might seem excessive or not excessive, but a not necessity in the beginning. And, and honestly, some people are going to find like, well, I don't want to not, you know, I don't want to, to sacrifice for this career. I don't want to not enjoy nice things. I don't want to live with my parents longer than I have to. I got to get out and that's fine. But every decision that we make from a financial perspective is going to either push you towards a career in the arts or keep you moving a little slower. So it's, it's important to kind of weigh those I know so many people that moved home, so many established adults that moved home or near family for, you know, the last year to, because of the cost of living. Um, and if, if those opportunities are still, um, out there, taking advantage of savings when you can, um, can allow you the more freedom to build up a solid financial foundation. And by financial foundation, I mean, savings necessary to sustain you on the inconsistent income streams. But really it's, if you're, if you're looking for a performing career and if you want to build your career as a soloist, 
you need to really weigh the pros, pros and cons of every financial decision you make. A lot of times with young artists, especially in residency programs, I have to remind them, you are, you have chosen a vagabond lifestyle. And for that, <laughs> you don't need, you know, any clothing that you pack, you know, you can't take your entire wardrobe around the globe with you. And the more stuff you have, the more you're going to have to pay for storage, you know, so keeping in mind where your money goes will really help you kind of focus on what you want. Yeah. So that's the first part of your question in terms of mindset. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, definitely. Well, I think too, that is one of the first things when even if just it's like you leave college and everything is a lot of people don't realize how many things go into your budget. <laughs> you know, it's easy to think like, oh, I've got, you know, rent and food and gas and so on and so forth. But it's rent and food and gas and insurance and electricity and water. And it's that bill you didn't expect to take pay because you popped a tire. There's a lot that goes into building a good budget and having a realistic idea of how much you are spending. Yeah. And and like everything else we do, especially as musicians, especially as artists, it takes practice and consistency. And you're not going to be immediately comfortable at working a budget when you're just starting two months in with your first job. It takes time. It takes practice. You get better at it as you go. And and you get better at planning for those unplanned and inevitable things that come up all the time as, as you go on. The second part of your question was what, what are tips for like saving? Like how do you save when you don't know how much is coming in? This is, I mean, I think a lot of times people focus on like building a budget and you almost think of it as like pie and this much to rent and this much to food and this much to you know, everything else. And inevitably, when we think about money that way, we run out, right? Because we allocate ourselves down to the very last cent. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about like how to build a budget in a second. But when you're thinking about how do you save when you don't know what's coming in? One of the things that I really emphasize is the importance of income projections. So anytime there's a contract coming up, anytime you're talking about like a concert or even if you're, you know, promoting your own works and you're putting together a recital for say October or something like that, you know, build out a six month income schedule. If you have stable income, like a W2 job or a side hustle, you know, how much of that can you count on on a monthly basis? And then how much does your church job give you? And really kind of look out over a six month time period about like where, where can, can you plan or where do you see things? Or maybe you just know like grandma always gives me a check for my birthday and I can start, you know, saving some of that or, you know, maybe, but if you, if you build an income projection, you can start to make informed financial decisions about, okay, if I have this contract in September and I get paid in October, I can take care of that vet bill then, or I can put this on a credit card and then pay that credit card off with this, or I can pay for travel now to do, to do this audition and then pay for it. But you have to have that long-term plan, especially as you're building a savings. Great. That's good information to know. So how does this change, if at all, when you're looking at a household of Two musicians. So I know, like, we had this Valentine's Day episode where we, where we talk about with yeah. her other musician in the living um, room yeah. right now, so we can record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, for example, I'm with a conductor. Uh, so I know that we're both, you know, musicians trying to figure that whole game out. So how does how does that kind of change when you know the household itself is kind of working off these parameters? I think whenever there's somebody else as part of the picture, communication becomes paramount. 
and, and transparency. And I think a lot of times, especially around money, maybe we were raised not to talk about money. Maybe we were raised not to, you know, talk in mixed company about money. And maybe it's also a little bit of like fear of like, what is this person going to think if they realize that I'm not making as much as it looks like or something like that. But I think as soon as you start making, especially when you're living with someone else and you guys have made that commitment, it is important to get real transparent about the financial pieces. And especially when both people are living on an inconsistent income stream, because so frequently in relationships, there's usually a spender and a saver, usually, not always, but, but you're going to have someone who wants to dine out or go on a date or, you know, go see this concert or do something and spend. And really you have to get comfortable, especially as a couple talking about, you know what, right now it's a little lean. Right now, maybe we play board games in. Right now, maybe we pregame before going out because the bar bill is really expensive. I mean, whatever it takes, it's just a matter of being really communicative about the finances um, and working together to make sure that you guys are both working towards individual goals and combined goals, but communicating about that, about like, this is my dream. This is my priority. This is what I'm building. I'm not traveling home to see your parents during the holidays. You know, it's just, that's money that I'm not willing to spend. And and that's not a slight against family. That's just saying I'm putting these priorities first, but I think where people get into trouble is when they don't communicate or where they acquiesce to spending or going places or doing things that, that aren't really in alignment with what they really want or what they can afford. And people create debt or they get kind of into trouble. So I think whenever you're living with someone else and you're planning and running a household, you know, it's, it's talking about, okay, who's paying for what, when, and knowing that there's going to be times where you can take the lead and you know what, hun, you haven't worked for three months. I got rent this month or whatever, or, you know, times that it's okay to lean on someone else. The nice thing about living with somebody else or cohabitating, um, whether it's roommates or anything else is that it keeps the cost of living even lower right? You're, you're able to do more with less when there's other people sharing those, those essential bills. But I think communication is really, really clear. And then understanding and supporting each other where you can. I got the Spotify bill. If you get the Netflix bill or, you know, finding ways that you guys can, can share and split the costs as equitable as possible. But frequently as one career will take off and the other might be a little bit slower. I've had a lot of, especially women not want to accept help from a partner. I think as long as communication and expectations are really clear, it's okay to to help. When when my husband and I started out, he had, you know, he was a teacher, but I was working in in business and there were just not enough jobs in in teaching when I got my my master's in education. And you know what, when I was working in a hedge fund, I supported him through student teaching. And when I was launching my first financial planning firm in 2015, he is the one with the steady income um, because he's a teacher. So it's, there's, there's a give and a take and whether it, it, you, whoever ends up taking the lead or, or paying more, if you guys stay together long enough, honestly, things balance out. But I think that the clear, clear communication and expectation is, is really, really important. And then doing whatever it takes, you know, if it means picking up a second job or having a partner that realizes while you're building your career, you're going to work a side hustle and you might not be available every Saturday to hang out. And that that's just where you are in your stage of life. But I think as long as communication there and expectations are, are clearly set, I mean, that's going to keep any, any conflict that comes up. Money is always such a tricky thing, but it gets even trickier when we don't talk about it. When, when it looks like, well, 
you're just not into me or you're not pulling your weight or you're not able to clean, you know, or do your share of the chores because of work or whatever. It's, I think that's when it becomes a, a problem. So the more you talk about it, the more we get comfortable talking about it, the more we can kind of work together for a shared goals and individual goals. Love it. Brilliant. I think <laughs> I want to hop back to something you said at the beginning of that, which is like the everyone's comfort level with talking about money. Because obviously, like you said, we all grew up in different households where maybe it was, you know, considered impolite to talk about money um, and people avoid the conversation. But I would urge everyone to get very comfortable talking about money with your coworkers, with the people you work with, because it's important as a worker that you know what you're being paid and what everyone around you is being paid to price yourself correctly for your services, for what you do, um, and to know when you're being underpaid. Yeah. One of the things that employers and hiring companies and managers and the industry thrives on is that secrecy, that privacy, like that we don't want to talk about it. But the fact of the matter is, is that in order for artists and creative professionals to have more agency in their career, to be able to value their services, especially coming off of a global pandemic when everybody's going to cry poor really being like, this is what I'm making for this gig. Or I know that so-and-so sang this role, you know, uh, three months ago at this company who was the same size as you and got paid X. The more we talk about it, the more we can create a community of people who are comfortable talking about money. But then again, how you, what Jessica said, how you price yourself, how you value your work, you know, if you're being undervalued or underpaid. I think as a society, we all just need to, I mean, the cost of living is such in different cities and stuff like that, that nobody wants to talk about how expensive it is to build a life anymore. And yet the expectation of us all being further along as professionals is, is out there and laid bare in front of us every single day. And I think the more we talk about money, the more we create communities of, of safe places to do that. And, and we can learn from each other, right? I think sometimes people feel, feel like they don't know enough or they feel stupid or they feel like, they, they're scared around money. And, and I have to say the industry, the financial sector has thrived off of consumers feeling disempowered and like they don't know enough. And this is one of the, this is one of my torches to bear, man. I am, it just gets me so fired up how other advisors talk down to people or they're like, mm, you don't understand how the market works. Like just crap like that all the time. I think the more people talk about money, the more comfortable you're going to be talking about money. You're going to learn new things from new people. And feel more comfortable sharing and learning in that space as well. Um, it just takes action um, and transparency. Yeah. And I think like it's super important to be able to, you know, clearly talk about money, you know, with your partner, with your roommates, with your coworkers. But I also think that becoming comfortable with talking about money allows you to kind of be realistic in your goal setting because there's so many times that you like will feel uncomfortable about money in general and not even know how to like think or talk about money with yourself and like when you're creating a budget because you just feel like you should be somewhere else or you should have this amount of money by then or you should be making this much. So it's it's definitely I think, you know, feeling comfortable talking and thinking about money is really a valuable skill. Absolutely. It was one of the things that totally changed the trajectory of my career is getting comfortable talking about money. Because when I was living in New York and I was working in management in my, it was supposed to be a gap year between undergrad and grad. I left management and I went to a hedge fund just as an administrative assistant to the owner. But in that moneyed environment, 
I got very comfortable talking about money. I got very comfortable talking about large sums of money. I got very comfortable being in an environment where that's just what everybody was talking about in terms of market movements or individual equities or, you know, your retirement account or the corporate match. Or I was honestly doing budgets, corporate uh, business expense reports for six people at, at one time. So I was seeing what people were spending and I was seeing the cost of things and I was seeing what the corporate cards were, were racking up. And, and then I left the city and I went to the, the North country and I was the executive director of uh, the orchestra there. And because I was comfortable talking about money, I was having donor conversations and I was talking to people about like, okay, so you give X amount of dollars a year. Would you consider a seven figure planned gift? You know, and this is, you know, asking somebody for a million dollar plus gift prior to being in a place where I'm like talking about money every day was something I was terrified of doing. Like pee my pants terrified of doing. (laughs) But at the same time, when you get so comfortable talking about it, it, it becomes second nature and you're able to have really transparent and impactful conversations. I mean, in that place with a nonprofit, I was able to help my donors achieve their goals and the organization increased their operating budget by 30% over the time that I ran it. So it it's a very important skill set, but you don't even know how impactful it's going to be because it'll it'll transform your life and how you see your money and how you behave with money and how you talk about money. But it'll also transform the way that you grow your career or if you ever work with an ensemble or professional chorus or, you know, anything you do, you'll you'll start to kind of think and shift a little bit. And to be comfortable um, talking respectfully about money as as an artist at at a at a house or being part of donor conference, I mean, there's just so much you can do with that skill set if we remove some of the stigma and um, and can just talk about. It. I mean, money is a tool, and I think we as humans ascribe such values or power or energies to it that money is simply a means to an end or an exchange of currency. So yeah, it's, there's, there's a lot one can do with money mindset, but yeah, just talking about money, I could do it all day. That's, yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask you a quick question to the person who's listening, who's like, okay, I understand that I need to be, to work on my communication skills when it comes to money. What's like step one? Or like, if I were to be like terrified, like maybe my parents were like, never talk about money. It's something that's totally off the table. Like it's bad character to, to discuss it with other people. How do I start? changing that mindset? How do I, what are some ways that I can actually like practice talking about money? Yeah. I think it starts with yourself. I mean, literally stare at yourself in the mirror and talk about money. Talk about, you know, okay, you know, okay, Tiffany, this month you have X amount of dollars coming in. Um, With that money, you are going to be able to cover your bills and you are going to put this towards, you know, this amount towards your goals or you're just put, you know, almost like warm up conversations with your, if you have roommates or with anybody else. Uh, if you're, you know, if you've coworkers who are always going to dinner, you know, say like, okay guys, and start with yourself in the mirror before you have to take this, you know, on the road, but like say, okay, I'm getting really comfortable saying like, okay, this month I'm going to spend $50 on whatever, on coffee. Um, and then stick to it. And, and communicate regularly, like, okay, well, if you have a coworker or somebody being like, hey, you want to go grab a cup of coffee on your break? Sure. All right. But at this point, I'm at $35 of my, you know, $50 budget. So I have to kind of, you know, curb that. The more we just bring it up, it doesn't have to be this big weighty thing. By saying something like, well, I'm $35 towards my $50 budget this month. 
that communicates to the people around you what you're trying to achieve or where you're trying to keep things, but it also just gets you comfortable saying money, saying currency values. When you need to talk about money, you know, in a, in a relationship or especially around like living things like, okay, this month, these are the bills or something like that. Again, practicing by yourself, say it out loud, say it in your car, say it in the bathroom, actually verbalizing it because that is usually the biggest hurdle. And the more we practice, you know, saying, you know what, I really can't accept a hundred dollars per service for this church job anymore. I raised my rates to 125 per service. The more you say it, when somebody challenges you, when somebody brings up the opportunity and you see it, you are, it's already in the muscles of your mouth to verbally say, I'm now charging $125 per service. If you can't meet that, I have to find another church job, whatever, you know, whatever it takes it, just the more you practice it, talk, talk about it with your siblings, talk about it with, you know, wherever, especially if you're getting started, find a sympathetic person or even someone who is also working on the same thing. If you have friends that identify, you know what, we all wish we were a little bit more comfortable talking about this, you know, practice together and talk about it together and hold each other accountable together. If you're from a family that says it's poor character and then you go home and you say, mom and dad, I'm trying to work on how I talk about money. They're not going to support you in that, right? So find the people who are sympathetic to allow you to develop this skill set before you try and go to an audience that might not be as sympathetic. So we actually gave some questions to our audience on our Instagram before you came on. And one of the questions we asked them was, do you have a budgeting system in place? And 47% said yes, and 53% said no. And you know what? I think that's probably about what I expected. That actually might even be more people with a budget in place than I expected, considering how young our audience is. Yeah, I think, you know, I think sometimes when you're just starting out, like you have own, like maybe you're paying your cell phone bill or maybe you pay for gas to and fro, right? Like the, the bills that you take on, life expands, right? And so when you're just starting out, maybe you're not paying your rent. Maybe you're not paying uh, health insurance or any of those costs yet. So, you know, a lot of times it's just a matter of like keeping track of cash on hand or how much is in the bank to afford day-to-day life. You know, can I afford to buy groceries or can I just eat whatever mom and dad cook? You know, so as you're starting out, sometimes you don't need a formal budget But then as things get more complicated, you need to track more things. You have more bills and more financial obligations. That's when people start to adapt a system to track that. Um, when, when it comes to budgeting, I mentioned earlier, like, I think a lot of people think of it as like pie. Like I have for easy math right now, I have $2,000 coming in a month. And so I'm going to break down that $2,000 for this much to, living expenses this much to food, this much to whatever. And, and, and people end up like allocating all of the portions out. But the thing when you're building a budget and you only look at it as a finite amount is that yes, you need to keep your bills kind of to a monthly, you know, you want to, you don't want to exceed your, your living on a monthly basis, but there are bills that come up annually. There are things that come up, you know, that we don't account for. It's, it's planning for the things that you don't plan for. And it's usually things like a vet bill or a car, you know, a tire thing or a vehicle thing that ends up totally jacking the budget. And yet, if you have budgeted your, if you've allocated every single piece of your pie on a monthly basis, there's nothing left, right? People plan down to the last cent and then they totally screw their budget when something unexpected happens or they haven't left a buffer 
for, you know, oh, crud, I forgot so-and-so's birthday and we were going to go to dinner. You know, well, that's not in the budget. So, you know, so I think it's really important to leave yourself a buffer. And that buffer is going to change as life changes. It's going to be bigger at some times. It's going to be smaller at some times. But I think when you think about money coming in and money going out from a budgetary standpoint, one of the practices that I really recommend is look at the numbers, right? Don't take um, your monthly income and split it up like pie. But look at what you're spending, track your spending, actually do the work of seeing where your money is going. Because so frequently, especially as you're getting up and running, you know, it's like money in, money out. Like, oh, I have cash on hand for this. Sure, we can go to a movie or sure, I'll go to this performance, you know, money in, money out. But when when you start to think about getting traction, moving forward financially and how to work with a budget. The first thing you need to assess is where's your money going? Like, what is the cost of your life? And if you're not paying rent yet, that's awesome. What do you on average then spend for gas and, you know, food on the go and and going out with friends and entertaining and, you know, cost of your website and the overhead for your business and your coachings and, you know, anything that comes with that, starting to capture those numbers and that data in terms of, okay, so right now, my life costs this amount of money every month. When you look at where the money goes and what then, you know, so for instance, maybe your overhead is $1,800 a month, right? Between what you spend for, for you know, the portion of your rent because you have roommates, your cost of living is low, you're, you know, you're, you're keeping to a frugal budget for dining out. You know, these are the areas that we really look at. And then if you do the exercise of looking where every single dollar goes, you're going to see that, you know what? I, I buy coffee on Tuesdays when I walk by that coffee shop. Or, you know, I'm really uh, a sucker for the end of the week when everyone wants to go out and that's where a lot of my money goes. I mean, you're going to start to see patterns of behavior in your financial spending. And the thing is, is that none of that is bad. That is all fine. The important thing is identifying where the money goes and then starting to track the system. Because if you break down your budget like pie, invariably, you're you're not going to keep a buffer. But the truth of the matter is, is if you say, well, out of my pie, I have $200 a month for dining out. But in the reality of it, you're probably spending more than like $350 dining out. When you start to try and quote unquote stick to the budget of $200, you're going to feel that, right? It's going to feel like you ha- you can't live your life or, you know, you're, you're living on a, an austere budget and that's not fun, right? And And then people invariably fall off the wagon and give up on budgeting because they suck at numbers. That's, you know, but if, if you start to build a budget around, okay, well, if you're really spending 350 a month, but you want to spend closer to 200, maybe this month we try for 325 and next month we try for 300 and we start to stair step down to right size the numbers for what you would like to achieve. And as you're doing that, you're going to find money then to go into savings. So instead of spending 350 on dining out, you're going to spend 325 next month and you're going to save 25 bucks because you know you were spending 350 prior to this, right? So instead of looking at your budget as pie, look at the behaviors and the spending and, and adjust from there. I think it's also just, you know, making sure that the times you do spend your money, because maybe you maybe you do really love coffee. Maybe that's your favorite little local coffee shop. And then you budget for that. But it's making sure whatever you're spending all your money on is actually giving you a return on investment on how happy it makes you. That it's not just money we spend because it's so habitual to us, but that it actually gives us some kind of joy, some time, kind of time with friends or whatever it is. Yeah. And I, I honestly, guilt, you know... um, uh, buyer's remorse and guilt. I mean, there's guilt is a waste of energy, frankly. 
Um, you know, and, and, and for any time that you're like, Oh, I wish I didn't spend that. Or I wish I didn't do that. Like the truth of the matter is, is that don't let other people tell you what to do with your money. I think it's a great exercise is having a conversation with yourself or journaling or a conversation with your household partners and thinking about like, what are your money values? If it is the local coffee shop that you want to support or, you know, supporting any of your friends and their small businesses or something like that, none of that is, is money poorly spent. But making sure that you're spending with intention, right? Coming back to what I said, money is currency, money is energy. Where we spend our money really is a representation of our values. Um, and so by being intentional and not reactionary, you're able to really kind of step in with full authenticity into what your values are and live with your values, vote with your feet. That kind of action um, generally makes people feel more comfortable about their money. So you've kind of answered this through what we've just talked about, but is there any style or maybe any particular style you might recommend that people start with if they're just learning how to budget? Yeah, there's a lot of great technology out there. I think one of the things that if people try a budgeting app and then they don't like manage it or they don't check it or they don't use it, they think, well, I suck at budgeting. But the truth is, is that 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 method of budgeting didn't serve you. I think it's really important to just find something that works for you and everybody's different. Some people like to just look at what's in their bank account. Uh, some people like to write everything down in a, in a notebook. Some people are Excel fiends. These are my people. Um, but the truth is, is, is finding a system that works for you. And honestly, I would, the, the exercise I put many of my clients through is looking at a three month period of spending habits. Because when we get into a new city, a new area, a new stage of life, it takes about three months to like settle in. Um, but a lot of times people are like, well, I can't do it because it was the holidays and that was overspending. Or I can't do it because summertime, everything gets kind of wonky. No, like just pick three months and look at where your money goes over three months. Because once you settle into those numbers and you know like, okay, I'm spending between 2200 and 2500 on average every month, you understand kind of what the cost of your life is. Like, what is what are your monthly needs? From there, then you start to, to build out like, okay, well, if I'm and working towards an emergency fund of X a month of that magic number, that 2200, 2300, then you can start to kind of build systems and goals off of that of like how you're going to get there. But I think it's, you know, there are apps out there. There's mint.com. There's you need a budget. There's, you know, some people are just really good at Excel. Um, I have an income tracker and an expense Excel template that I'd be happy to share with you guys if you want to link. I think I have the links on my website as documents if you want to share with your listeners. Just a template to start plugging in your numbers and tracking your data. I don't think you have to budget every single month of your life. But I think once you get really comfortable with, okay, on average, this is what I'm living on and you have a system for understanding where your money is going, then you can kind of relax a little bit and kind of repeat those habits. That's great. I love that. So another question that we asked our audience was, do you feel um, as if music school has prepared you to understand or handle your finances? And I had expectations for, you know, the amount of people feeling like, yes, music school left me feeling prepared to be low, but these are <laughs> just depressing numbers. Um, so we had 4% say yes, and 96% say no. And what was even funnier is we had a couple people who DM'd us and were like, I accidentally voted yes. <laughs> like, so who even knows what that number is? It could be like three or 2%. So I mean, this is like 150 young musicians and f like 
3% of them feel like music school left them with some sort of understanding or preparation. So with that in mind, what are like three things that you wish young musicians knew about money that maybe they didn't learn in school? Wow. I mean, those numbers are not surprising. And in the conversations that I've had with institutions of like, whose job is it to teach this? People are scared of getting it wrong. And that's why I think people are underserved. Three things that I wish young musicians knew. It's a big question. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, boy, you're down to three. Um, you know, because you could fall into the tropes of like, save early, save often, invest for your retirement. But that's, I wish people knew that money is not finite. You can always make more. That it is a version of self-care to know your numbers, right? To know what it costs to live your life. It is, and that's one of the things that I'm doing this year is like knowing your numbers is self-care because to not know what your income looks like, to not know what your expenses are going to be, to not know what the next month's cash flow is, creates a lot of stress and anxiety for a lot of people. So also like knowing your numbers in terms of like, what is your student loan debt? look like, right? Know that number. It's not a bad thing. It's not a slight on your value as a human. It's not, you know, but I think so many times we just kind of shy away from, from debt. We're done with money shame in 2021. We're being honest about our, our debt and our expenses and what our income has to be to support them. Exactly. I love that. Done with money shame. There's no reason to feel shamed. You didn't do anything wrong. You invested in an awesome degree for a career that you are going to build and you're going to provide so much through your art and through your work and through your music to this world. We need what you do. So don't be ashamed of it. Know your numbers. Spend some time with that. Um, that is a version of self-care. So know that money is not finite. You can always make more. And even if you feel like, oh my God, this contract is the last contract for, for the next X amount of months and I'm never going to get hired again. No, there's always other work there's other gigs. Somebody's going to contact you or go out and self-promote or do your own thing. So money's not finite. Knowing your numbers is a version of self-care. And then one other thing that I knew about money, taxes don't have to be scary, right? The IRS is just some people doing their job, just like you are doing your job. And I think that they thrive off of the fear, um, just like the financial sector thrives off of people feeling disempowered. But I think that just knowing that taxes don't have to be scary I guess it ties in a little bit with know your numbers because you can, you know, I don't know, by planning for your taxes and you can listen to the other podcasts about how to plan for your taxes, but you're knowing your numbers, you're controlling what you can control and you're moving forward with intention about where your money is going. So those are the, I mean, maybe that's a little more esoteric than what you guys were, were looking for, you know, <laughs> things like, like budgeting, you know, understanding the cost of things, you know, double checking the unit price at the grocery store. I mean, that's all ways that you can save money or keep your cost of living down. You know, big, big money things are, it's not finite. Know your numbers. It's okay. No more money shame. I love how Jessica wrote that. And really that taxes don't have to be scary, right? Nobody's going to come and sneak into your home at night and beat you to a pulp because you were a day late on your taxes, right? It doesn't happen like that. So that would be terrifying. I'm glad that doesn't happen. <laughs> but yet we like create this like, oh my God, it's so much stress. Like it's, it's just, just another thing. And then our final question, I think this has actually been really interesting in this past year because I've seen a lot of people start talking about investments and things. We've seen a rise in people getting into like very small stock investments and, and things like that. But it's a big, very confusing world. Are there any kinds of investments like Roth IRA or stocks or so on and so forth that young musicians should be considering or should that money mainly be staying in savings? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. 
Whenever I work with any clients of any stage, there's there's a bit of a, a hierarchy that I go through in terms of when to promote or suggest investing versus when not to. So one of the first things that I would consider is how how stable is your income? Do you have income? Because if you start an investment account of just an individual brokerage account or something like that, and you put money in, but then your income is inconsistent and maybe you need that money to live on, if it's in for a short period of time, you're going to be stuck with higher capital gains rates for the trades that you've placed and then sold than if you can hold it for a longer period of time, right? There's a reason why we, it's not so sexy to think about income stability first, but if you are in a place where your income is enough to support that monthly need and you have a little extra, um, then the next kind of level of the hierarchy is what's your savings look like? Do you have your emergency fund fully funded. Most young professionals are probably going to say no unless their parents have saved for them. But if you don't have an emergency fund of six to nine months as an artist, okay, that's fine. You're not going to get there overnight. It doesn't mean you can't invest. It just means that I, from from the advisor's standpoint, I would have counseled a client to make sure that they can get $1,000 and then one month of, of some savings, you know, And then, so if you have at least a month of savings plus income stability, right, I know that if, you know, if something unexpected comes up, we have savings and yet we still have income stability to cover what your needs are. So if you have income stability and a bit of a a savings cushion, it depends on what the objective for the investment would be. A lot of times I would counsel people to try with a Roth IRA first, especially if they're young professionals, because a Roth IRA, I mean, the max you can put in is only six grand a year, but a Roth IRA is very versatile in terms of how it will be utilized over the course of your lifetime. So um, for instance, uh, the benefit of a Roth IRA over just a, a plain individual investment account is that the Roth IRA is, is taxed, tax-free and tax-deferred, meaning when you buy a stock and then sell a stock at a profit uh, or a mutual fund, you don't pay capital gains um, in a Roth IRA because it's a retirement account. It's a it's a it's it's a tax shelter of sorts. So a Roth IRA is beneficial because you don't have to worry about those short term tax implications. However, most retirement accounts should be invested in for a long period of time, right? We want it for retirement, and that's in our for most of us seventies now. Um, but so the, the, the thing about a Roth IRA that is neat though, that is really wonderful for, for young professionals is that after the account is aged five years, you can reach back into a Roth IRA and take up to the principle of what you have put in. Meaning you can, you know, if something unexpected happens or, you know, in five years from now, you, your income dries up or you're in a, in a hard spot or you want to make a first time home purchase. You can actually reach back into a Roth IRA and take up to the amount that you put in for, for a qualified uh, disbursement. Now you've already paid taxes on that. So you don't have to worry about taxes or the penalty. Now, if you start touching the interest, that's when that 10% penalty would hit you. But so when we think about like, what is the hierarchy, right? Stable income or pretty stable income, right? Financial support. And we want to make sure you can cover your bills build up an emergency savings cushion of some sort, be able to continue to fund that cushion, maybe $10 a week over time. Then a Roth IRA, if we're looking for more of like, where do we put dollars for the long term? If you are thinking about, you know, oh, I just want this money to grow. 
Um, you could get started with an individual investment account, but again, there is, I just said how, how, how terrible the financial sector is about like creating fear. I don't want to create fear here, but I want to make sure that people understand there are short-term capital gains implications and long-term capital gains. So just Google them. What's the difference? Dip a toe in and start educating yourself about how the market works. There's a billion and five articles out there. Nerdwallet.com is a really great third-party website. Just read up on it. You know, if this interests you, do your homework. The other thing I would say is when you start buying stocks, invest in what you know. Don't listen to the 24-hour news media cycle. You know, you can research, hey, best stocks for 2021. But really, if there's, you know, to be a stock holder is to be an, a part owner of that company. So if there's a company that you're getting in bed with, do your research. Do you like their policies? Do they have equal, you know, gender representation at the board level? Um, are they offsetting their carbon footprint? I mean, figure out the things that are important to you and invest in companies that share your values. Um, one of the things that when I started Virtuoso Asset Management, we are doing a lot. The, the goal for the firm is at least 50% ESG funds. So funds that are invested for environmental, social governance, or gender parity. Uh, and governance issues, because I believe that we can all put our money in companies that are doing good for the world and yet also get a return. But make sure that the companies that you're investing in, this is where a lot of people just follow what their parents did or whatever the talking heads do. And it's funny because the talking heads all have an agenda as well. Everybody's got an agenda. So know who, where you're investing and why you're investing. And just take some reading and doing homework. There's a ton of, of, of information out there about like how to get started. Uh, from a conservative standpoint, you know, you don't want to just jump out there and create an investment account and yet not know how your bills are going to get paid next month. So start at square one. It's it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We've got Tiffany's hierarchy of financial needs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, so Tiffany, you touched on uh, your new company briefly. So tell us a little bit more about this adventure that you've been on and, and um, how it's different from uh, your previous business. Yeah. Um, well, thank you guys for the opportunity to share this. Virtuoso Asset Management is a brand new registered investment advisory firm that I started this year. And really... I created it because I'm going to be really transparent with you guys and the rest of your listeners. The financial industry is run by a bunch of old white cis myths. And I, frankly, as a female, I've been in a position where I've been celebrated as a female financial planner or financial advisor. And I've been actually part of one of the firms that I was a part of was like, I was the token woman advisor, you know, like it's, I'm just so sick of the financial industry um, and the way that they do business is very male-centric. It's very old school. It's very much cold calling and salesy and frankly, not not how I work. Um, I got really, I, I guess the impetus for creating Virtuoso Asset Management is I, um, I was in a position where corporate agendas were starting to be put ahead of what my clients' needs were. And I will not compromise on what I've promised to my clients. I have committed to being there for them and their financial needs. And if a corporate agenda or a corporate bottom line is requiring me to spend time with people, I don't really, that don't really fit my ideal clients, you know, at the sacrifice to the people that I've made a commitment to, now you're making me compromise on my values. So uh, creating Virtuoso Asset Management was just me moving into a space where I can unabashedly 
build a financial services firm dedicated to my value structure and to my client needs. So things that um, are different about my firm as a um, financial services firm, you know, I we are in the business of providing financial services and, and investment management and financial planning, but the things that the core tenants of the firm are really radical transparency, like I'm going to be publishing an annual report each year showing what the firm made, where the money came from, how much I make, you know, all of these things, radical transparency. How does a financial services firm work? Um, because with that, we are giving 1% of gross profits back to the arts. There are, there are uh, companies out there that do 1% for the planet. I'm sure many of you have seen it. Uh, Patagonia, you know, was part of that spearhead. And, and I think that's wonderful. And, and I think, you know, I, I mentioned that we are doing at least 50% ESG funds for the investment strategies within virtuoso asset management. But the other thing that I really like about, uh, so we're kind of doing that piece. The 1% for the arts tenant is because the arts, in my opinion, and I, and I'm sure that many of your listeners would identify with this. I truly see it as it is essential to our society in terms of how we capture and record history and how we as humans experience the human experience. I mean, arts are unique to humanoids and, and yet, I don't know, there's so many places that it's the last place or it's the superficial place that they donate um, or support. And so by building a financial services firm geared towards um, artists and supporters of the arts, right? I have muggle clients that as long as they believe in the value structure of what we're building and what we're doing, they will be part of that community that is giving back to the arts. So by publishing an annual report every year about how the firm works, what we're making, where our investments are, what percentages, um, and then also giving the community of clients and members um, an opportunity to vote where that 1% goes. I'm not picking the, the 501c3. An arts organization is going to be uh, picked by the community, voted on by the community, and then we're going to give them 1%. And that's just every year. The other things, you know, I'm working with um, Morgan Brophy is my director of operations. She was at Wolf Trap Opera until this year. Um, and together we're building a culture at the firm that's moving away from hierarchical tenants, right? So why should me, the founder, make X amount of dollars more than than a, an assistant? You know, at the end of the day, I can't do my job without my assistant. So, you know, building a culture that is really people-centered, radical transparency, um, and, and trying to empower our clients instead of disempowering them. A lot of people in the financial sector, uh, other advisors that I've met, think their clients are stupid and they have to rely on their advisor to make their fund trades because their clients don't know any better. My take on that is your clients don't know any better because you're not doing your job, right? It's your job not to tell them what to do with their money, but to educate them and empower them to make whatever decision is right for them. Building building a, a company that's dedicated to some of my core values, allowing me to just really provide exceptional service. And then you know, when I started crunching the numbers about what that company looks like and I realized that it was financially doable, then we we got to work at, at building a company that, you know, I don't have to employ all of those old sales tactics, cold calling or anything like that. I truly believe if I provide exceptional value and exceptional service, people will refer and people will come to me. And my focus in this firm is providing value. And it's honestly a natural extension of virtuoso advising for artists. So now I provide coaching, financial literacy education. And if you want to work with an advisor that understands creative professionals, 
um, I can help you invest your funds. There are, you know, from from a, a purely, you know, setting up of the business standpoint, we don't have really account minimums, but um, the, the custodian that we work with is Charles Schwab. So we start with like $1,000, right? If you have $1,000, we can start investing it for you. The, uh, there's, it's not up yet, but there's a, a, a fee calculator on my website that'll show you like, okay, if you invest $1,000, what is it going to cost you the investor, right? Again, I think radical transparency is important. And so like that 1.25%, what does that mean? Okay, well, that's $12.50 annually for the services of myself and my team. You know, so understanding, you know, how the system works and where you're getting value and where you're not. And then my, my vision and my hope is that, you know, I mean, this year, the goal is just getting, getting launched and onboarded and like survive six months. But the vision for the, you know, going forward is that virtuoso asset management will be a home for other advisors, other musician turned advisors. I can name four off the top of my head and I haven't even begun outreach, but I know that other musicians are struggling and other artists are struggling with the, the confines of the financial sector. And so building something by artists for artists, you know, we can, we can change the culture. We can change the, the conversation. Um, and build a community of people making a difference uh, by investing together, making a difference through ESG funds, making a difference by knowing that your 1% that you pay for your asset management isn't just buying somebody's yacht. If I buy a yacht, you're all invited to come. No, <laughs> but it's instead, it's being given back, right? We're, we're creating, you know, we all have to invest our money somewhere. We all have to grow our money in order to outpace inflation, but why can't we build a financial services company that then takes and gives back on an annual basis part of those fees, which then further supports the arts community, right? It's, it's this whole ecosystem. It's this whole structure. So I thought I could build it better, and I did. <laughs> well, it makes us so, so happy to, you know, have met with you several months ago and then now see you on your journey now. And, um, you know, we wish you all the success and it seems like you are well on your way. And, you know, if we could just copy and paste a bunch of Tiffany's, the financial sector would be a much better <laughs> place for everyone and artists. So, um, yeah, it just it makes us really happy to see you succeeding. Thank you. And thank you guys again for providing your listeners with these tools um, and resources, but also just, you know, having these conversations. Uh, open conversations. Um, everybody benefits when people start talking. Um, so if if people want to check out um, or where to find uh, Virtuoso Asset Management, it's just www.virtuosoassetmanagement.com. Um, we do have a really unique membership um, that uh, will be beginning in the fall um, for people who might not be ready to invest but want to get on kind of a, a, a monthly educational series and modules for DIY and, you know, ways to learn about money. Um, I'm taking some of the course stuff that I do at the houses across the country and creating some online courses and monthly subscription content for people to really start digging in, roll up their sleeves, get involved. So you can sign up for the waitlist uh, for that launch at the website. Um, and of course, Virtuoso Advising for Artists is still um, on Facebook and Virtuoso Advising on Instagram. Um, though it's not super active, but we're hoping to drive, uh, you know, now that the business is launched, we'll be able to focus a little more on that. Wow. This was 
such an informative episode. Once again, if you guys haven't listened to our episode with Tiffany on taxes, um, like Jesse said earlier, it's never too early to start planning. But I think that, you know, Tiffany, you have just such a a clear way of speaking about money, um, especially to artists. And so we really appreciate having you on um, and talking a little bit about budgeting and spending and saving and everything that goes into that. So thank you so much for uh, coming on. It's good to have you again. Yeah, it was delightful to be back. I love talking to you guys. Thank you so much for for having me. Well, thank you again to Tiffany for joining us and really walking us through some good ways to start your budgeting habits and where to start looking towards your future um, financially. If you have any other questions about financials or on topics related to this that you'd like us to cover, that you'd like us to find somebody to come on and talk about, please let us know. You can always reach us through at Opera Offstage on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can also go on our website and go to opera-offstage.com and contact us through our form on there. We are always so excited to tackle these topics and to really get into the things that music school didn't teach us. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.